the Bookswell Intersections Podcast, Episode 10. I'm Cody Sisko, and we're doing something a little bit different today. Back in July, Bookswell exhibited at the Lit Lit Fair, the Little Literary Fair, at Hauser & Wirth in downtown LA in the Arts District. I managed to gather a few clips of interviews with some of the other attendees where we talked about books that are coming out, what we're reading, and all sorts of good publishing stuff. Following that, you'll be treated to an interview I did with Seba Sarwar, a Pakistani-American author, artist, and activist. And of course, we'll round out the episode with Shannon Egan and her takes on the upcoming events that you won't want to miss. At LitLit, Lit, the first interview I conducted was with Rochelle Youssef, co-host of the Bookswell Intersections podcast. Enjoy! Hi, Rochelle! Hi! So we're going to talk a little bit about books. We're in the midst of Lit Lit 2019 at Hauser & Wirth, put on by the LA Review of Books. And what's the scene like here? Well, we're sitting in a lovely little al- what, walkway. You can call it an alley. Alley walkway um, in downtown Los Angeles. It's very lovely. Lots of people are walking around. And we're surrounded by other great community partners, other literary organizations that are out here trying to... Um, engage readers just like we are. And Bookswell is here today with a pop-up bookshop featuring writers of color and indie authors and we've sold some books and we've got a lot of people signing up to our newsletters uh, and a lot of people are now probably listening to the podcast for the first time because they saw us here which is a great feeling. Yep and we also have some of our previous interviewees books here to sell as well. Yeah, we're featuring Seba Sarwar, Roxana Preciado, and Shonda Buchanan in particular, and introducing our readers to them once again. Yep. So, Rochelle, what are you reading these days? Okay, well, I just finished reading Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors by Sonali Dev. Um, I think that's how you say your name, and it's sort of a take on... Um, Pride and Prejudice, but with an Indian American family, um, and it's not really like they're trying to like marry off their daughter or anything like that. But it's basically about a young woman who meets a guy, and they have a series of miscommunications, and they get mad at each other, and you know, it sort of ends in a happily ever after. Prejudice. I will have to check that out. Yeah, I, I liked it. Um, the only thing I would say, and maybe this is just because it's Pride and Prejudice, but some of the like arguments or tension feels a little um, like forced. Okay. You know, like like why are you actually mad at each other right now? I don't really understand. But it's also Pride and Prejudice. So that's part of the misunderstandings. And yeah. Social norms and all it that. is what it is. But um, I enjoyed it. Yeah. How about you? Are you reading anything? So I worked my way through uh, the rest of Octavia Butler's Patternist series real quick, and then I'm now reading her Parable of the Sower, which is fascinating. And um, it's fascinating because it was written in the 90s, but it's basically dystopian fiction about like the disintegration of, of society in California and what happens when a woman like strikes out on her own. And at the same time that she's sort of surviving dystopia, she is developing what's essentially a new religion. And it's, uh, it's of the things that I've read by Octavia Butler, it is one of my favorites thus far. So it's definitely, um, it's written, it's sort of like, um, Oh, uh, what's the word? Epistolary novel, except that instead of like her writing letters to someone, she's writing her diary. So you get this like really interior um, view of her life, and she's a very uncommon um, character in that she's like a young woman, but is like way mature beyond her years. Um, she also suffers some, from something called hyper hyper empathy syndrome which is very similar to something I did with my books with mirror resonance syndrome. So it's like, I don't know, a lot of the time when I read Octavia Butler, I feel like I'm in the same mind groove as she was um, just 20 years later. Yeah, yeah, and her books are both like terrifying, but so engaging that you can't put them down even though you're actually like really concerned about what's about to happen. I read Kindred and loved it and really want to read her Parable series also. It's good and it feels like I think probably since 2016 feels even more relevant than it would have in the 90s. I think she, you know, she wasn't prescient, but like 
she saw the way that things could disintegrate and we're seeing a lot of like cultural trends that are not going in the right direction um, also that yeah that show up in her book so it's it's in, it's an interesting time to be reading it yeah yeah and just in general reading like um, Afro Afrofuturism yeah yeah really I think key right now and also just supporting women writers like her and that genre is really important right now too yeah Cool. Well, Rochelle, thanks for joining me at the Lit Lit Fair in 2019. Thanks for having me. Next up, I spoke with Rachel Will. I'm here with Rachel. Hi, Rachel and I uh, met each other through the LA Review of Books publishing workshop last year, and now we're sitting together. She is representing her new digital publication, Gayettes. Tell me about Gayettes. Hi, Cody. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, Gayettes is a magazine for femme queers, and we explore gender identity through different genres of writing. This includes personal essays, interviews, poetry, um, graphic stories, and all of it is available online at gayettesmag.com. Tell me, what are people going to find when they go there? What are some of the articles that you have up there right now? Yes, um, one of our really fun stories that we have right now is an interview with the drag king. Um, so as RuPaul has gotten very popular and drag queens have become very well known in popular culture, drag kings have not um, experienced as much representation or awareness. And actually Los Angeles has become um, a really popular place for drag kings to start their career. There's different spaces for them to perform, different events that are happening. And we spoke with Malcolm Ecstasy, um, a cool king around town, and talked about their experience with the scene, with other performers, and what it's like to be a drag king in Los Angeles. That's awesome. I know that you also had a launch event recently. How did that go? Yes, we had a launch event in downtown Santa Ana at a gallery. and. We had some fun activities, including making your own smudge stick. My mom was there to help with the booth. We also had tarot card readings, and then we had burlesque performances from three performers from Southern California. What was the inspiration for creating Gayettes? Why did you go this route? Um, I think in the world of LGBTQ publications, there's a lot of general focus, and there's a lot of specific focuses, but I wasn't able to find a focus for queer femmes. Um, since um, Gayettes has started, I'm really happy to report that being more in the space and seeing what's out there, I have been able to see like a lot of really cool projects like the Femme Project, Femmes on Top, um, really cool organizations, events that are happening around femme identity, um, and I hope to be doing the same with Gayettes Mag. So where can people see your magazine online? You can go to gayettes.com, that's G-A-Y-E-T-T-E-S, or you can go to Instagram at gayettesmag. That's fantastic. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Cody. Next up, I spoke with Candace Miller from Interlude Press. I'm here with Candace Miller, and she's going to tell us a little bit about the press and about some of the books she's excited about. Thank you. Um, well, Interlude Press, we are having our fifth anniversary tomorrow, actually. It's our birthday week. Thank you. Thank you. And we're, we are a queer press. We publish um, fiction for both adults and young adults that feature main characters and point of view that are LGBTQ+. Books for everyone, though, and that's really our motto. I mean, first and foremost, it was about representation, but also, and especially with the YA, what we're finding is a good book is a good book and it's introducing a point of view that people maybe haven't seen before, need to see. We're very focused on intersectional fiction as well. And so we have readers who are queer, we have readers who are straight. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. What books are coming out soon that you're excited about? Uh, we have a very full fall okay. uh, with a couple of YA books we're really excited about and one adult collection of short stories that's really exciting got featured in O Magazine, so we're really excited about that. First, we have a book called How to Be Remy Cameron, which is a coming-of-age YA by an author named Julian Winters, and know that name, because you're going to start seeing it a lot. I'll remember. <laughs> I'll also, it'll also show up in our show notes, so people will see it visually. Outstanding. Um, he is an author who is definitely on the rise. He's, he's becoming a rock star in YA. 
and uh, we're we couldn't be more proud. This his, his second book, and we just see him developing as a writer and really having something to say. And at the same time, he says it in an incredibly charming and endearing way. So we love that in YA fiction. Then in October, we have a follow-up to one of our most acclaimed books. Again, a YA, a comic fantasy, an author named F.T. Lukens. And she writes comic fantasy. This one's called Monster of the Week. And it's a follow-up to a multi-award winning book called The Rules and Regulations for Mediating Myths and Magic. A coming-of-age story about a kid who's got to raise some money for college and ends up getting an internship and his job is to hide the world of myths and legends from the human world. And hijinks ensue. You had me at the title, but now with the description, I'm definitely adding it to my to-be-read pile. Oh, please do. It's all about the cryptids. The new one is even funnier than the first. And then we close out the year with a, an adult collection by Claire Rudy Foster, who is an extraordinary writer. And this is a collection called Shine of the Ever, it's about Portland in the 1990s and the emerging queer community. It's a series of short stories, flash fiction. It was already featured in O Magazine and will be featured on The Rumpus very soon. We are incredibly excited about this book. It's got a very punk rock vibe to it. Awesome. Thank you so much. I am excited about these books and I hope we'll talk again. Thank you. After Lit Lit wrapped up, I had the opportunity to catch up with Caitlin Keating, Bookswell's Features Editor. Okay, so we're going to talk today with Caitlin Keating, who is the Editor-in-Chief at Craft, the Operation Manager at Prospect Park Books, which is a LA local small press, and who has been with Bookswell since the beginning and has contributed to um, our Instagram and our features and a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff. So Caitlin, thanks so much for being here today. Uh, you're welcome, Cody. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, and you're putting on a very specific hat for this conversation, uh, one I didn't mention, which was the, well, you could tell me about it. The, uh, for Lit Lit 2019, you helped put it together, right? I did. I helped organize Lit Lit, which um, I'm describing as a pop-up book fair, because that's kind of how it came together. Um, and I was responsible for organizing the publishers and exhibitors for the fair this year. There were dozens who came out on a short notice to to be there. What? It was amazing, and we even had to turn people away when we when we reached capacity. Um, the, just the willingness of the local community to jump in and grab a table and come spend the weekend exhibiting uh, was heartening to see. Um, yeah, and we I believe we had thirty five vendors over the two days. Wow. How did this come about? This was an offshoot of a mock book fair that we hosted at the LA Review of Books publishing workshop um, held at USC in the summer of 2018 when we organized um, a fair that our students and fellows would attend uh, where 11 local publishers agreed to come and pretend we were having a book fair and set up tables and um, interact with our students so that they could learn uh, a little bit more about what that might look like. And this year, the publishing workshop director, uh, Irene Yoon, also Bookswell contributor <laughs> and friend of Bookswell, <laughs> yes. um, uh, decided that she wanted to see if we could make this public um, and uh, host it over the summer in July while the publishing workshop is taking place and uh, recognizing um, that summer is sort of a slow time for the book scene in Los Angeles. Uh, it's in between some of the fall festivals and then of course LA Times Festival of Books and Pasadena Lit Fest in the spring. Not much going on in the summer. Um, so they, the LA Review Books put together a little team to um, sort of conduct our own versions of a feasibility study. Um, and just as luck would have it, I would say, the, um, some of the people on that team had connections to a few different spaces in LA, but we got uh, just really lucky with the idea of partnering with Hauser & Worth. Um, 
sort of started as a no, that would never happen. And it's <laughs> too nice. It's um, out of our league. And then, of course, it wasn't. Uh, they loved the idea when when they were approached um, by the LA Review Books team, and it came together. <laughs> and the public showed up. It was a busy weekend. It was a very busy weekend. Um, I know that the numbers for Saturday uh, were over 3,500 visitors. Um, I didn't get the numbers for Sunday. Um, I think it was a little more relaxed on Sunday, nice, quieter energy, um, but I'm sure that it would have been at least 2,000 or more. And then each one of the panels were standing room only, um, over capacity, and I think people really enjoyed them and uh, were carrying those conversations downstairs and keeping them going, so that was nice to see too. Yeah, what were some of the highlights for you? Um, for me, uh, I would say being able to look around and see so many friends and community members that I know, it feels like Los Angeles is huge. And I know we talk about this at Bookswell and really anywhere in the literary scene in Los Angeles, you know, how do you build a cohesive community and a geography that's so spread out? And this was just a real treat for me to look around and see, oh, look, there's my publisher, Colleen Bates from Prospect Park Books that I work with three days a week. And there's Cody with Bookswell at that table over there where I've been lending a hand for a few years. And here's my friends at LARB. Um, and here are all these publishers, you know, all of the 11 publishers who came out for our mock book fair last year were part of the event this year. Um, and then, you know, other community partners and, uh, we were able to bring Inlandia Institute out for one day um, from Riverside County, which was fantastic. We had uh, one, one friend come down from, uh, from the Bay Area, uh, Two Lines Press from the Center for the Art of Translation made the trek. Uh, that, was, that was special too. We had, I believe our invite list had just four from the Bay Area this year, but that's a pretty big ask. Um, at the end of June to say, would you care to come exhibit for a full weekend in a month? Yeah. So I would say the highlight for me was just looking around and seeing how many people I did know in a city that sometimes feels so uh, disconnected and disparate. Yeah, that's great. And it's a great thing to bring everyone together. So last question for you, what are you reading right now? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, at Craft, we are hosting the first chapters contest right now. So I have been reading um, a whole lot of hopeful entrants uh, for 6,000 words of their novels in progress or wow. published. Um, so that's been actually great fun. Uh, I, I would say good quality summer reading, everything from genre to um to literary fiction to strange little lyrical novellas and everything in between so a whole lot of that kind of reading um and then i finally just got my copy of uh, elizabeth mccracken's bowl away um and i am looking forward to digging into that that is currently topping the tbr <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Caitlin, thanks so much for joining me today, and we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Cody. Seba Sarwar is a thought-provoking author and speaker, an inspirational artist, and a dynamic community and cultural activist who is dedicated to creating connections between communities around the globe. Through her writings, talks, and workshops, Seba encourages awareness and action among people of all ages and backgrounds. I met up with Seba on the grounds of the South Pasadena Public Library with chirping parrots, playing children, and traffic in the background to interview her about her novel, Black Wings, and her artistic inspirations. This is the Bookswell Intersections podcast. I'm Cody Sisko, and I'm here with Seba Sarwar. 
Hi, Cody. Hi. Uh, so we're outside the South Pasadena Library, and this is actually where we met. Indeed. For the first time, I think it was a Poets and Writers uh, roundtable. That's and right. And you were presenting your work on Borderlines. Correct. You have a really good memory, and that was actually 18 months ago. That was February 2018. That's precise. I think you have the good memory. <laughs> but I know because I can mark what I did that spring because I was insane spring 2018. Yeah. So yeah. I know what I did. So I, um, I was reading through the second volume of Borderlines last night, and it, it reminded me how relevant um, the issues of transnationalism are and sort of how important it is to showcase stories of moving across borders and what that means to the families and individuals affected. Um, but some of our listeners might not know about what Borderlines is, so maybe you can uh, give them a sense of that. Sure. So, I mean, when you ask me to tell you, then there's always a story and there's a story behind the story and there's a story behind the story. And we're going to talk so, about that too. <laughs> so I, I try and keep it short. but. I am a new entrant to the Los Angeles literary community. Prior to this, I was living in Houston for a long time, where I began a nonprofit arts organization, a social justice arts organization, before that term was even a word that was used in the language that we hear today, and social justice I'm talking about. And um, we did so many things, and there's still a website. The organization is called Voices Breaking Boundaries, and the website can be visited on VBB Arts. Dot org, and the mission was to cross borders, sustain dialogue, and incite social justice through art. And I know it because I lived it yeah. for almost 20 years. Um, one of the projects that we did was called Borderlines. And I um, am from Pakistan, born and raised there, and I maintain a home there, and I do call myself a transnational. And I'm always interested in connecting stories between regions. When I'm in one place, as I was in Houston for so long, I was very conscious that people around me needed to understand that there's other worlds and other struggles around us. Through Voices Breaking Boundaries, we created art productions, we created workshops, and what the project that's, that was the most powerful and had the most impact, not just in Houston, but outside and way beyond, was um, a project called that was called Living Room Art, through which we transformed residential homes through art. Hmm. And when I say art, I'm talking about everything. You name it, visual art, performance art, um, installations, interaction, everything was incorporated in that, in a residential home. So hmm. we would work in a residential community that people didn't know. There were usually stories in that neighborhood because the stories were, the neighborhoods themselves were marginalized. So we were crossing borders within Houston. Hmm and connecting artists from Pakistan, from India, all over uh, Mexico to bring their work to the neighborhood and to the home. Hmm. And, and so that project began, anyway, that's another story. So I won't go there, but I will talk about Borderlines. So Borderlines was one of the last projects that I did. It was a five-year project. Through the project, we explored parallels between uh, border regions in North America mm -hmm. and South Asia. And in North America, it's pretty easy to understand. We have Mexico, U.S., and Canada. But a lot of times, Canada, that northern border is left out of the conversation. So we wanted to bring that in. And South Asia it includes 12 nations, but we primarily focus on Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, a little bit of um, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Afghanistan. It was an annual project, so it began with two visual art, uh, two art productions, living room art productions, a year, one in the spring, and one in the fall, and one in the spring. And then we would culminate that with a publication, which included work from the performances and the living room art, but we actually brought in writers and artists from all of those regions to um, share work that we then published. And I was very, very aware that a lot of times when you talk about borders and you talk about diaspora, you talk about issues when in other nations beyond this one, the United States, mm -hmm. um, the work often you know, showcases um, that of the diaspora. Yeah. And I was very, very passionate about actually involving artists and writers in the in the nation in the nations that I'm talking about, mm. you know, in South Asia and North America. So we had artists in Mexico. 
um, uh, give yeah. us work, visual yeah. art and essays. And then we had artists in Canada share work. And then we had artists in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh yeah. um, send us work. It seems like some of the, well, some of the most dramatic stories are from um, people both from the diaspora and people who were left behind as borders shifted around them, you know, and maybe exactly. they were at home first, but then suddenly they're, they're uprooted by a redrawing of the map. Right, exactly. Um, yes, I mean, that story, South, the, all of, I mean, California was once Mexico, exactly. Texas was Mexico, Arizona yeah. was Mexico. There are families, including my husband's family, for example, that can trace their, board, their history back generations when they were Mexican and then the border shifted. So. Yeah, and the, and the conflict seems to be sort of multi-generational in that, like, um, you know, there's immediate impacts, but those, those don't go away with time, actually. Exactly. And the same, can, the same is true of South Asia. My parents were born in India, what is now India, but at that time was just a British colony mm -hmm. in North India. And then I was born in Pakistan because their families migrated. Mm -hmm. So, and it's a very common story. There's a whole archive in, at Berkeley that's called 1947 okay. that um, captures the stories of those who crossed at that mm -hmm. time because it was one of the most violent crossings in human history. Mm -hmm. you, so, yeah. So you mentioned earlier um, stories within stories within stories. Yes. And um, when I read uh, your novel, Black Wings, uh, for me, it had that a similar feeling um, as the Hakawati by uh, Rabia Alamedin, where it's mm -hmm. where the, the layers of stories within stories are how the characters relate to each other. You know, when, um, if, for example, in your in your novel, when um, Yasmin and her mother Layla talk to the younger generation. They they tell stories that are fantastical in some cases, yes. but also it's historical. Yeah. It's magic realism. Yes, <laughs> yes. And um, that quality of of multiple layers of um, understanding, I think, was really enjoyable for me. Thank you, thank you. And you're referring to Black Wings, which was published in Pakistan in 2004, and mm -hmm. then it went out of print. And there's another story about why it was published in Pakistan <laughs> and not the U.S., but that, I'll tell, I can share that if we have time. But then a U.S. publisher picked it up this year, last year, mm -hmm. and then I ended up scrubbing it completely because in 14 years, our language changes. Yeah, can everything. I ask? I, yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about revisiting older work and what kind of um, mindset you need going into it, how you decide what you're willing to change and not change. Um, yeah, what was that process like for you? So when she, when my friend, who's the editor of Willie's books, Minerva, asked me that, let me know that she wanted to use, wanted to publish Blackwing, she had just started the publishing press, and um, I had met her years ago, and she wanted to use the book as a textbook at El Paso Community College, where she teaches, and she couldn't because it wasn't yeah. available. Oh, wow. So when when she started the publishing house, she wanted to use, publish it so she could then order it and use it in her classroom. So mm. that's how that happened. And when she, when we, when we were talking about it in May 2018, I was like, or maybe earlier, even in February 2018, and I was like, oh yeah, great, I'll just do it, give me the contract, and I'll rip it out in a month, and I'll move on to my next manuscript because I'm also working on a memoir. Well, I opened the document in 2000, May 2018, and I was in shock. I was just like, oh my god, I, I cannot release this manuscript as it is because my language has changed. Yeah. It's gotten much leaner. I am very aware of um, sentence construction in a way that I wasn't. And not even sentence, just content. And then also some of the content was harsh. Mm. And I gave myself full permission and my editor to my publishing house did too, and to do whatever I wanted to do. And so the story does not change. The stories that you're referring to mm -hmm. are pretty much the same. Um, the language has changed. I feel like that's the curse of a writer. As you improve your craft, as you learn, as you go through experiences, you're then more aware of things that you've written in the past and how they might be changed. Exactly. And <laughs> the beauty is that you can do it, of you course, know, yeah. which is which was fabulous because it wasn't as if I was wondering whether I could once I gave myself permission. But so that that process took almost six months actually. Okay. I was doing other things, of course, always. But it took a, it took a lot longer than mm. I thought it would, and it was much more intense. But I actually had a great time doing it. Yeah, and so, was working with the editor 
working with the editor and they are wonder Billy's books in okay. El Paso Texas they are a wonderful publishing uh, editing team and I got great comments Good. and I just I had a wonderful experience and yeah. the cover is actually drawings by my daughter who wasn't even born when the book was published wow yes that was yes fun. and she didn't make the drawings for the book I had that collage yeah and I gave it they asked me if I had ideas for design and I gave it to them and they loved it and it's worked out beautifully that's fantastic I know yeah. I know so I'm, I'm very happy with the book and um, the original question was about the stories within the story yeah. so that's the culture in which I was raised um, many People in the West know A Thousand and One Nights or Arabian Nights, mm. as the abridged edition is, where Sherazad stays away, stays alive by spinning stories like um, Aladdin and all these stories that have become adopted by Disney. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of like where you just sit down. And I grew up without television and or maybe an hour of TV when I was five, you know, we, we didn't even have TV. So it didn't, we, my cousins and I just sat around, spun stories, made plays, performed, talked, grandparents sat around telling stories. Oh, you want to know about this? I'll tell you this, but first you have to hear this and yes. whatever. Yeah, there, there's an element of um, misdirection, which I found pretty fascinating where, you know, there are truths, especially in your novel, where um, there are truths that the older generation don't want to come out. There are secrets and there are things that maybe aren't appropriate for children to know. And so it's like, yeah, I'll tell you a story about that. As, but it, it turns in a different direction. Exactly. I really appreciate that. It's Thank also you. one of the points of tension between Yasmin and her, her mother, mother, Layla, where it's like, and I, I really liked this twist and I don't think it's a spoiler, but where uh, you think that some truth has come out and there's been a revelation, but is it enough? And no, it's not enough. And that mystery enough. stays till the end. Absolutely. I mean, I have had people read the book and then email me and say, but tell me <laughs> this but part. But what really happened? Or this part is not. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the whole, that's about life, right? right? Do we ever know? Right. Everything, every answer are we ever given is, the, is, it, is it the job of the writer? And I'm mm -hmm. very also, I'm also very passionate about not doing translation, using words, grabbing words from wherever I want, not yeah. translating, not explaining, not using footnotes. Not, mm -hmm. I don't believe that that's my job. I believe that if, if I tell the story well and, you, and the reader is engaged, then the reader will understand. And yes, definitely Urdu Hindi speakers have a better, will get, grab another layer. Okay, interesting. Definitely, because even all the Pakistani friends that I know, they knew exactly what I was talking about yeah. when I described the hill station, Hawagali. Mm, In yeah. Urdu, Hawa means, Urdu and Hindi, because Urdu-Hindi is the same spoken language, different text. Hmm. Um, Hawa means air. Okay. So, Gali and Gali means street. Ah. And it's an invented hill station. Okay. But in fact, the descriptions. I did. Of, I did a little searching and tried yes. to be like, so where is this? And it looked like the foothills of the Himalayas. It is. It's about eight thousand feet high. Yeah. But that particular hill station is an imaginary name, but it is based on a hill station that I used to go to as a child. Wow. And I have friends who have read the book who'd be like, wait a minute, the description is exactly <laughs> of Nathiagali, and I'm like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Glad you know it. So you know, people know, and you know, just the words. Like Kanis, what that means, the witches. Yes. Right? When people yeah. ask me, what is, what is the book about? The book is about witches. It's yeah. about women who live life in a certain way and. Against the against, cultural norm. Against the norm. Yeah. And then they are labeled as evil or witches. Mm -hmm. And that's the myth that kind of swirls through the whole novel, through the stories. Um, but Kanis in Urdu, in Hindi, means uh, maid. So part of the story is around leaving home and, and maybe self-imposed exile yes. um, for Yasmin and then as she starts to deal with some of the um, painful traumas in her past um, she starts to, to confront them and does in fact go quote-unquote home yes um, and struggles with that not really feeling like there's any home right how do you introduce your children to a culture that that you've kept from them up until that point right yeah it's a really important I mean and that happens I mean some people like my daughter, who's now 14, she used, she used to go every summer. Mm. So she's very familiar with yeah. Pakistan. She, she met my father before he died. She knew, she knows our house. She, she, I mean, she's totally, she understands. But there are other families 
which, who don't do that, mm-hmm. you know, who would either cannot afford it because, it, yeah, it is yeah. very expensive yeah. to fly, um, or they are not interested. Mm. So, they, I mean, they just, they don't have the means or interest. I think yeah. it is about means and interest. Yeah. Because if you have interest, then you will make it happen. And for me, yeah. it was really important that my daughter knew that. Yeah. And there's such a strong American um, cultural problem, which is to dismiss anything that's not sort of, quote unquote, homegrown. That's right. Um, you know, I think about it for my my um, my sister married a Moroccan man. So my nephews now, you know, they're seven and four and haven't been back to Morocco yet. And I wonder, like, I hope that there will be a point where it makes sense to be able to, that they can have a kind of reckoning. And I don't know what the right age is for that or, or how it works, but, you know, it's a, it's a question of like, how, how can we be a bit more open as a culture to say, we should be more curious about the world and where people come from and what their stories are. Well, if you look at Europe and you think of, you see how there's no border now, it's going to change. It may change, but how people sp- cross and they speak multiple languages and yeah. it's it's a, considered an asset. Right? Yes, absolutely. And in this country, slowly, you know, dual language, three languages is yeah. considered is being included in the curriculum. Yeah, and that's changed. I mean, I I've been reading um, a few articles lately. You know, personal reflections, a memoir about. Um, I think there's been a generational shift in terms of, especially language use in the home. And how, for generations, particularly with um, Spanish-speaking families, uh, it, there were many families that said, no, you know, we're, well, we're going to acculturate. Well, I'll tell you, what, my, so my husband is Chicano. Yeah. And when he was going to school in South Texas, in public school, you could not speak Spanish in school. You would be um, not, not expelled, but you would have to go home. Yeah, disciplinary. Yeah. Oh. So it was, it, was, it was almost illegal to speak Spanish. Yeah. So of course their parents didn't want it. And then when I went to college, in, I was in college in Massachusetts, in a women's college in Massachusetts, and my first roommate was Chinese-American. Mm-hmm. She could not speak to her parents because she spoke only Chinese, only English, mm-hmm. and her parents only spoke Chinese. Wow. Can you imagine yeah. that much of a disconnect? Yeah. And I was so passionate about it. So my daughter, my daughter speaks three languages. She's not totally fluent in Urdu, but she got it. And so I speak to her in Urdu all the time. Sometimes when she's being sassy, she pretends she doesn't understand. But in (laughs) truth, she always gets it. And of course, Spanish she has gotten because she went to a dual language program. You know, people always ask me, want me to talk about the immigrant story. And that's, Mm. and in, in fact, I have a really wonderful agent in New York. She could not get Black Wings placed in 2004. Because, um, the publishers, the mainstream publishers wanted Yasmin to fit into a stereotype of what a Pakistani woman should be, which is a practicing Muslim, which is a certain kind of um, demure, whatever, whatever. And Yasmin is none of the above. She's just what she is, which is a woman, professional, working in an ad company, has had a divorce, wants to, is disconnected from home, but knows her history and understands her past and has pain about her past and is choosing a very... um, unhealthy way of dealing with it mm-hmm. but nonetheless she's just a human being and she's not Pakistani as in in any other way other than her history she, mm-hmm. you know and there's plenty of South Asians living all around the globe who live like that who don't have to choose just as I have never chosen how to be described you know yeah. so so it did not get placed in this country and a Pakistani publisher offered to take it up yeah and that was great. Oh, what a disgrace to the American publishing uh, decision makers there. I know. Well, I think there's a quota, right? You've got to get a certain number of brown writers. And if, they, if you're going to get a brown writer, she must be so. She <laughs> must be. And actually, yesterday I was watching the documentary on Toni Morrison, okay. which is amazing. And I mean, that whole issue came up for her also. Like, what does it mean to be a black writer and how... How do you get recognized for who you yeah, are? Yeah. So there's a moment. Um, I'll paraphrase the line. There is a moment where Yasmin wishes that she could take the best aspects of Pakistan and the best aspects of America and create a new country. Oh wow, that's so great that you picked that out. I was giving a reading in Houston. Actually, I, f- I flew back to Houston. I was doing a tour, and my friend Krista Foster, amazing writer, also she interviewed me and she pulled out that paragraph and she read it, that same paragraph. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's my sentiment, which comes out in the character, because I wish I, I could mix and match, because there's so much I love about my home, which is Pakistan, and about my home in the U.S., which mm-hmm. I, 
you know, I like it all. And I want it all to be a certain way. And there's certain things I don't like about either, yeah. you know? So, but of course, we don't have that. So we, I guess I make home wherever I go just by creating the kind of work that I do and creating the community that I want. And it's the same community that I've had in growing up in Karachi. And I think that was, that's been a really important thing for me to say about my life in this country, that what I do here in the US, in Los Angeles, in Houston, is exactly the same as what I do in Karachi. There is no difference. Yeah. So since you've moved to LA, what, um, you know, you were part of the literary scene in Houston, you've now, um, now part of the literary scene here in, Happy to be in so. LA. I mean, yes. do, you, do you have any um, highlights or what, what is your take well, on I'm it? I'm blown away by the literary scene in LA. I had no idea. There are so many amazing bookstores, independent bookstores, literary. I mean, I'm part of two liter you know, writing groups. I, I mean, the fact that I was right here giving a reading when you met me, giving a talk and reading when, yeah. I, when you met me just 18 months after moving here. But that's because I knew Jamie Fitzgerald from okay. Poets and Writers before because I was applying for grants, Poets and Writers yeah. grants. So I've known her for a very long time. But still, I mean, I feel like, the, 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 and, I, and I, what I love about the Los Angeles literary communities is very open. I have found people just welcoming. Hmm. I'm going to be reading at Why There Are Words in August. And, right. you know, in general, I just feel like, oh, you have a new book. We want to talk to you like you're talking to me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's amazing. And I think that the difference between that community in Houston is that in Houston, it's not, the literary community is very small. And okay. it's more affiliated with the university, which I was, University mm -hmm. of Houston, which I was, I was an artist in residence there, but not a writer in residence. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference. So mm -hmm. I think what I loved about the arts community in Houston was that everything was mingled up, just mangled and mashed mm -hmm. together because there was so there was not as much. Mm -hmm. So there weren't streams. It wasn't like, yes. oh, there's music, here's music, here's literary, here's visual art, yep. here's film. I mean, in LA, it's like, forget it. You can't even talk to people in the film scene, right? I, I complain a lot about the hierarchy of the arts, yes. especially in terms of media coverage, where it's definitely, um, you know, film and TV, yes. performing arts, yes. visual arts. Right. And literary is <laughs> But the freedom that comes with being under the radar is yes. amazing. Can I ask you about your writing, what you're working on now? I'm working on my memoir, okay. which is called On Belonging, which took on a totally different meaning when I moved to Los Angeles. And so yeah. since moving, I had already begun, I had already, I was already working on my memoir. It began during a residency at the University of Houston. Um, but I am trying to finish it. And I wasn't trying to finish it when this Black Wings or, uh, invitation came along. And then I had to put that to the side. Yeah. And now I'm getting back to it. It's, I'm almost done. I'm getting, I'll be in a writing re retreat this in two weeks, actually. Um, writer's workshop and I'm really looking to get feedback and then finish it by, by December, be have, done. Have there been any challenges specific to writing memoir that you hadn't encountered before in your, in your writing career? No, hmm, that's a good question. I said no without thinking, but <laughs> I don't know. Each project has its own. I don't think it's about genre. It's more about the time that we are at in our lives and what we're saying because there's many pieces of black wings that is that are taken from my life mm -hmm. it's not an autobiography by no means but it has definitely the story the main story of the witches comes from a childhood mm -hmm. myth and that was told in our family and the many things that people who know me recognize okay um the difference is that in um, on belonging I cannot fictionalize. I can't. Right. I can't say, "Ooh, I didn't like that ending, so I'm going to change that mm -hmm, ending." I'm mm -hmm. going to, you know, I have to. I am changing people's names, obviously, and all of that. But I have to stay to the. I have to stick to the story. I yeah. cannot go. I can't veer off from that. It, but I don't find that to be a challenge. I just find it to be an interesting mm -hmm. way to write. And connected to the memoir itself is a performance and mm. art installation that I that I was commissioned to do by the Manil Collection, which is an amazing, amazing art space in Houston. Mm. It's a hidden treasure. But I will be doing that installation at Scripps College okay. in September. 
and so I can share that information with you also. So Excellent. I'll be recreating that. There's a performance also, and I may be doing that in a, at another space, but I'm having a lot of people are expressing interest in the project. So there will be pop-ups all around LA, I can promise. Cool. And what's the, the concept? Um, okay, it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> but the performance contains extracts of my... It's a 40-minute performance, and it contains extracts of my memoir, okay. which are more performative than the text that is in chapters, obviously. And the memoir follows not just my life. It's like pieces of my life. I interviewed my mother on video for four or five hours, and then she transcribed the videos. Wow. So it's using her text and my text, and then another issue, issue related to health and memory that I have that I've been dealing with, and so it's weaving mm. those together Interesting. to create a performance, but that comes from the memoir. And then the inst- go ahead. What, one, of, one, of the, um, one of the things I took away from Black Wings was the way that our memories and our reflections on the past change how we perceive the present and you know, our, our lives as they are now. Um, and would we'll talk about that? Well, I, I, in the context of Black Wings, um, there is a there is a mystery about what happened on a, on one night in particular in the mm-hmm. protagonist's life, um, and her relationship with her mother and how she interacts with her in the present day is is completely colored by what she assumes happened on that night. Exactly, that's great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, and then how that changes based yes. on the, how what her mother then tells her, and then how she herself softens because she's a mother. Yeah. And she has to know. And then somebody asked me, I was on radio in, in Houston, and my friend Dwayne asked me, he was like, do you think that the novel softened because you're a mother? Oh, and interesting. And I was like, boom. <laughs> because he knew me before, so right. he could say that. Right. Yeah. You know, obviously, I mean, there are things we do differently once we become parents because mm-hmm. we realize that, oh, if I model this, what am I giving my child? So, yes. Yeah. So, certainly. So, yeah, that's true. We do our reality but how we see the world is changed by how we are at a particular moment mm-hmm. and i wonder if um i haven't written a memoir but i wonder if the process of re-examining and unearthing and and putting form into memories of our past changes how we view it you know it's like yeah. no stone left unturned and then once you turn it over is it the same sort of i think what happened the way i began it was i was not interested in writing a memoir okay when i began the project i had a ton of essays about you know meeting my partner renee about being pregnant and knowing that i was going to give birth to a child who was being who would be connected to five different national borders to you know there were so many reflections of what it means to have grown up in karachi and then to find myself in houston after never having imagined myself as being anywhere but Karachi my whole life because I have no issues with my home. And, you know, there were so many essays that had come out in so many different... I just wanted to put them all together. Okay, yeah. And I started putting them together and then I realized that each essay had certain facts that would be reproduced, you know. It would be like, my mother was born here, Uh, my husband was blah, blah, blah. You know, it was just like, so, okay, if I chop those, then... What's left? What's left, and then it... It just didn't work. So then I just said, fine. I just put it, scrap it all and yeah. write, write a Sometimes new book. Sometimes the blank page is a better starting point. Exactly. And some of it is not blank because some of it is extracted from text that I wrote 30 years ago. Okay. Exactly, when I had some surgeries mm. in my brain. And I mean, I just, that is actually text that I wrote then. Mm. And I have that. And so obviously I've changed it for language, but the content is... Mm. Those memories are sharp in the text yeah. because they were recorded, they were recorded. contemporaneously. Exactly, mm-hmm. and I would never have been able to capture that today. Yeah, yeah. you know, going back in, over time, you cannot. Then, yeah. it, then it is shaded by a veil of memory and moments. That's and interesting. Yeah. We should all be journaling more, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, we should journal. Yes, I, I interviewed. I met and I had Patty Smith come to Houston, and she performed. And I interviewed her on radio. And she was talking about how in her memoir, Just Kids, uh, where she talks about her friendship with Robert Maplethorpe, mm. she took it all from text that she had written wow. back in the 70s. Seva, yeah. thank you so much for oh, joining me today. This was fantastic. Oh, thank you. And thank you for doing all the reading. My, I had no idea. I was not expecting this. <laughs> all right. I just called you for we'll coffee. Talk again soon. <laughs>
Hello again, Bookswell Intersections listeners. I'm Shannon Egan, and I'm back with some LA literary events to excite and inspire you for the final two weeks of August. I'm sure we have a lot of writers and creatives in our listening community, and these events will be especially interesting for those readers who also enjoy creating their own content. Up first, this Thursday, August 22nd at 7.30 p.m., Durin Kondo will be at the last bookstore discussing and signing World Making, Race, Performance, and the Work of Creativity. Kondo's book is a critical analysis of creativity in theater and performance and explores how world-building in the arts can lead to social transformation. This book includes the entire text of Kondo's play, Seamless, which deals with the aftermath of Japanese-American incarceration, and the evening will also feature performances of selected scenes from that text. I love the idea of theatrical performances at an author reading. I think it should be moving and engaging. A week later, on Thursday, August 29th at 7.30, also at the last bookstore, they'll be hosting John L. Geiger and Howard Suber to discuss Creativity and Copyright, Legal Essentials for Screenwriters and Creative Artists. This book is pitched as an essential guide for creative artists looking to succeed as industry professionals. Geiger and Suber have laid out the nitty-gritty details of copyright, clearance, contracts, and collaboration to help writers who may have amazing ideas but lack knowledge of the crucial legal issues tied to creative production. Creativity and copyright is an indispensable resource, so don't miss your chance to ask these experts your questions in person. Friday, August 30th at 7.30 p.m., head to Skylight Books, where Dora Malik will be sharing her poetry collection, Stet. Stet pushes the boundaries of creation within a constrained form and deals with an artist's ability to create life as well as art. From the publisher, Stet is a work of serious play that brings home the connections and intimacies of language. Sounds like a perfect collection for writers of artists of any genre. Finally, you heard Cody's wonderful interview with Seba Sarwar right before this segment, and I wanted to shout out an upcoming event that celebrates the release of her novel, Black Wings. Sunday, August 25th at 2 p.m., she will be at the Dwight Wright Auditorium in the Pasadena Central Library, joined by several other female writers of all ages and backgrounds. There will be samosas, cake, refreshments, and of course, poetry, prose, and excerpts from Black Wings, which I definitely want to pick up after Cody and Seba's conversation. That's it for me, Bookswell listeners. As always, you can find out more information about these events and so many others at bookswell.club, our website, or by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Bookswell Club. Thanks for listening.